Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Faith here with your welcome toast. It was Irina Chalmers who said, if French fries were called pommes à la mette, do you suppose we would eat so many of them? I got that sunshine in my pocket. Got that good soul in my feet. I feel that hot blood in my body when it drops. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. We're in our culinary studio at the Big G Gateway Community College in downtown New Haven, where we use their culinary education program's five professional kitchens. And are they decked out? My treasured food buddies are here, but we want to tell you what's coming up. On this radio and podcast episode, we're going to give you lots of tips on how to sear meat or vegetables on your stovetop, plus how to make simple pan sauces, which is a thing that I love to do. The author of Searing Inspiration, the new cookbook, is our guest, and we're all going to talk about how to make an instant gravy. I'm someone who stresses like crazy over gravy. As a test before this show, the whole bunch of us got together with Chris, and he showed us what the main elements would be, and then we started playing. So we're going to tell you how to do that step by step, and it's going to be posted on our website, foodschmooze.org. My food buddies are Chris Prosperi, senior producer Robin Doyen-Aiken, Mark Raymond, Carol Peck of Good News Cafe in Woodbury, Connecticut, and joining us a little later on, Mary Lou Weissman of Westport, the Connecticut author. She's in a memoir of what it's like to live for a while in Provence. So armchair travel coming your way. Hey, everybody. Hey, Hey, Faith. 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 Okay, let's do the gravy thing first. All of us, Chris, Mark, Robin, we stood around the stove here at Gateway. And Carol, what we did is put in a whole bunch of elements instructed by Chris. He said, here's a container of chopped tomato. Here's some garlic chopped up. Here is some onion. Here's a little sherry or bourbon. Here's one strip of bacon. And here's a container of chicken stock. So okay. you, I bet you know where we're going, yes, right? Yes, I do know okay. where we're going. So, and some cornstarch. So, yeah, and some cornstarch <laughs> with a little water in it just, just to make it thick. Flour, if you undercook it, can taste very floury and yeah. weird. And what do we need it for? It's a thickener, but there are so many other thickeners. So, so many, yes. you know, cornstarch is so neutral, Carol, right? Yes, indeed. Also, potato starch is a Another good one. And chestnut. Have you ever oh, used yes, chestnut yes. flour? It's a great yes. one. You you know, because yeah. you do this at the restaurant. You have such a huge gluten-free Menu. bunch of stuff. Yeah. By the way, I forgot to say that Carol's here from Good News Cafe because they are celebrating 25 years. Wow, mm. that's amazing. And she's helping other people as a way to celebrate, Aww. which is very much like her. And also <laughs> has given us recipes to post on the site, so you're going to get those too. Okay. Let's all together say what we did to make this chicken stock-based gravy for your turkey. 
This is a minimal amount of things. And I will say that it is my idea to use one strip of bacon as the fat for this. <laughs> I am Nothing sorry. wrong with it. Nothing, Nothing wrong with it at all. Not to just agreed. a touch of bourbon. <laughs> yeah. but that's, that was you yours as cook, well. You can cook that off yeah. so that it's not yeah. an issue for anybody who does not drink alcohol by yeah. choice. Okay. Number one step. What did we do? We cooked a strip of bacon. And then we took the strip of bacon out and we left all that good, we'll just call it bacon juice, in the pan. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we have the bacon juice in the pan. And then to that, we just added a nub of butter, just a little bit, and then a half chopped onion. Because what we want to do is get that onion caramelized. That took about three, four minutes. Nice diced up. We kept it stirring on medium-high heat. You saw it started getting brown in the pan, right? The pan edges got a little brown and toasted. Because yeah, we're not talking here about 30-minute or 60-minute caramelized onions. No. We're just talking about a little brownish stuff yeah, little on brown the onion. Stuff happening. And then the bottom of the pan, which is going to yeah. be good stuff later yeah. on. Okay. Then we on. threw in our chopped up tomato. And it was one plum tomato that we just chopped up and threw in there. We cooked that just, again, a few minutes. Then then we add uh, two cloves of garlic. You cook that for a minute or so. And then we splashed in some red wine. And that's going to pick up all that stuff off the bottom of the pan. So now we've just added the wine. We're mm -hmm. stirring and we're cooking for, what would yeah, you say? Two minutes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it got nice and syrupy. Then we added our chicken broth. So you mm -hmm. were actually reducing it a little bit. Yeah. That's why mm -hmm. it became syrupy. Yeah, syrupy. And then we add our chicken broth. How much did you add? A couple uh, cups. Now, listen, you don't have to write this down or memorize this because it's at foodschmooze.org. So once we got that up to a simmer, that's when we made our cornstarch slurry. Now, that sounds very complicated. <laughs> oh, it's so not, though. It's, it's so not easy. It's not complicated because you use your finger. Yeah. Yes. That's very important. <laughs> Have to use your finger. Can't okay. use utensils for this. So this is a thickener, and yeah. it has been shown in lab tests that it has zero flavor. Testers yeah. have tested and tested to see if they can determine, is there a flavor coming off of cornstarch? The Pretty answer neutral. is no. Okay, go ahead. Right. So, so you mix equal, you equal parts cornstarch and water, mix it into a slurry, which is what it looks like too, right? It's water and cornstarch. Yeah, yeah. mm -hmm. While your broth is simmering, you just very slowly pour it in and whisk it with a spoon, mixing it in, and you'll see it'll thicken. We gave you an amount to just make it a nice thick gravy. But like I said, you like it thinner, just stop a little quicker. You like it thicker. Add a little bit more. Okay. So, so now that we have that cooking, you are we still simmering? Yeah, yes. we're still simmering, and this is where you came back with your bourbon. <laughs> well, right? just the tiniest, tiniest amount touch. because there was, you know, that we talk about that umami thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Carol, there was something missing. chewy missing. Mm -hmm. Even the bacon. You know, a little bit of the bacon fat was in there. There was something chewy, and I was thinking, should we chop up the bacon and put it in there? Because it is good with turkey. Right. Right. I was already Absolutely. eating it at that point, though. But, so Chris, as an element, had brought a tiny container of bourbon, and I thought, let's see what happens. So very small yeah. amount, right? Small amount. We poured it in. You just cook it for a minute or two, and it'll just the alcohol will blow off it. So it'll be just the flavors of the bourbon. And then we just finished it with a little butter. This is where you'd add a little salt, and that's all depending on your chicken broth, how much sodium it had. You taste it and see what you think. I use honey a lot like that as that last element. Sometimes oh, when yeah. the dressing mm -hmm. isn't right or yeah. sauce isn't right, I taste yes. I say, okay, get out the honey. Yeah. 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 Or, or maple yeah. syrup. Yeah. yeah, we use a lot of honey. Or yeah. maple syrup. That's yeah. good, too. Yeah. What, do, what do these do? Because you would think in your mind that that is just sweetness. No, but it smooths out your whole palate. 
with the sauce or whatever you're making. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And would maple syrup would be? Oh, a, absolutely. Same thing. Absolutely. Right? Okay. So there it is. Right so now, simple. Posted. So then, easy. Wait, so really simple. Is. Don't be afraid. One more thing. So we're talking about gravy now. We have our bird, our turkey cooking, right? Because we're talking getting ready for Thanksgiving. So you're going to defat the bottom of the pan, right? And you're going to take whatever drippings are down there and you're going to add that to oh, this finished oh, gravy. Yeah. And then, boom, you got turkey gravy. And you can make this, what, days in advance and keep in the refrigerator. And then do you have to strain it? Because you put in all kinds of chunky things and it's crispy it's up skin to your own and... taste, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like you know? I like yeah. the chunks. It really like is. Yeah. Do you, you like? Know, yeah, I like little floaty it, things I, in my gravy. As many in a professional <laughs> kitchen, we would say, yeah, let's strain it. Yeah. Just but at home, don't right. you like those little yeah, bits? No, and, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. At home, you yeah. would. I wouldn't at home. I wouldn't strain it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. Exactly. <laughs> because you have to wash the strainer. Oh, that's, and that's, <laughs> that's the worst. That's, that's yeah, the that is the worst. No, I thought you meant I wouldn't cook it. Yeah. Home. <laughs> no, I don't cook at home too much. <laughs> that's why I'm laughing. Okay. Well, so we wanted to let you know about that. We've got on the next show, we've got some stuff about how to do, honestly, perfect mashed potatoes. We just want to get you ready for Thanksgiving. We've got some recipes and stuff. I hope that was clear. And if it is not, this is posted on the Food Schmooze. Chris, here's the main question. We did a small amount because there were four of us standing around the stove. Yeah, two cups. Some people have crowds and they want to make quite a lot of gravy. Is this the type of recipe you can scale up? Yeah, very Does easy. that mean scale up every single item, like two strips of bacon instead or, of one? Yeah. Or, <laughs> or even two strips of bacon in this batch wouldn't be <laughs> Or a pound of bacon. Yeah. Carol, yes. if you're not a meat eater, right. I don't know what you're doing with the turkey in the first place, but let's say <laughs> bacon is beyond the pale. What would you use to give it that sort of, I don't know, beefy, chewy, smoky. kind of smoky... What could we substitute that gives that kind of umami thing to the gravy? How about um, mushrooms? Yeah. How oh, about yeah. Por- like how a... about dried porcini mushrooms? Yeah. 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 yeah sure. Yeah. Or yeah. even yeah. just like they have a they have a nice little kind of yeah, smoky earthy note. Earthy. Taste yeah. yeah. That's good. Yeah. But why not eat the bacon? Okay. I understand. I don't criticize. I make tamari sunflower seeds. You just oh. put them in some tabari and bake them off, and they taste exactly like bacon. That would oh. totally So you could put those oh, in there. Yeah. I need and to get some of those. Yeah. And you'd have your crunchy things, yeah, too. Exactly. Oh, Texture. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Really? So, yeah. yeah. How do you do that? Tamari or soy. Yeah. But it's a tamari, lot of people. Gluten. Are, yeah, thing. it's gluten-free. Yeah. You just take and toss your sunflower seeds in that into the oven. You don't need anything else. Oh, oh, what like, what temperature would that be? Everything is high. In the <laughs> On or off. Yeah. It's, it's 550 or nothing. Yeah. I love that. Thank you, Carol. Because everyone always asks me, it's on, oven only has two settings, on and off. Unless they're baking in it. Yeah, that's it. My, my baker, she has to come in early, so she reserves one of the ovens. And use that dial thing yeah. on it. So 400, let's say. Yeah, yeah high heat. Sheet, sheet pan. And just watch it. 450 maybe. And, and lay it out and flat. And you stir it. If they're burning around the edge, not burning, but coloring around the mm. edges, then I'll take a, a flat spatula and <gasps> just stir it. That tastes idea. like bacon. Yeah, that is they the do. most brilliant idea. Yeah, I just Congratulations. I yeah, they're too. delicious. Right? Sounds like a yeah. good thing to have like in the car when you're traveling, you know? Right, we're making snacks. those. 
Okay, just back from the nutritionist. <laughs> yes. There's your bacon substitute. There's my bacon substitute. With we your were thinking egg. more like With your egg white plain omelet. popcorn. <laughs> okay. Well, that was so much fun. And in a few minutes after we talked to Carol, who's staying with us for the whole show, Lucky Us, I want to also talk with... Mary Lou Weissman, because I read a memoir that she did about her travels. She and her husband took off for Provence. They love it there. And she came back and wrote a kind of travel memoir about what happens when a a couple tries to be a little bit French and do all the things you need to do, maybe to be mistaken for regulars. And it's that dream we all have. I mean, many of us have for some country. And so she did it. And we're going to talk with her about that. There's even a recipe attached to this. Okay, here we come to Carol Peck, who is co-owner of Good News Cafe, which is celebrating 25 years of what I describe as excellent cooking. Carol, you decided to celebrate your 25 years, um, not only by redoing the entire interior, but also to celebrate other organizations that you respect. Tell me about that. I started doing benefits right after 2001 when the World Towers came down, and then I kept doing them until restaurant turned 15 years old. So when I decided that we needed to have a bash, I thought, well, you know, we used to give a decent amount of money to these organizations when we did that, so let's do it that way again, you know, and It's just that kind of fun, light night. And with the change of the restaurant, people are amazed how different it looks and the new feel of it. Yeah, Chris can testify. He's gotten a sneak peek. You loved sitting in the bar having dinner. It's It's, just um, such a gorgeous room. And they are, Good News Cafe is on Main Street in Woodbury, Connecticut, which is a wonderful destination all by itself. Their anniversary celebration is Friday, November 9th. And it is, I guess, a thank you to locals who've supported the restaurant all these years, including, I'm not a local, but including me, um, local farmers, the entire community, really. And the anniversary is going to feature farm-to-table cuisine. So there's going to be music for dancing and all kinds of cocktails, and it's $80 per person. By the way, this all benefits the Pomperog River Watershed Coalition, Woodbury Community Services, and the Woodbury Fire and Ambulance Associations. Awesome. And I couldn't be happier. And just to keep her giving going, Carol's given us three of her recipes, which we have posted on our site, foodschmooze.org. Schmooze, S-C-H like school, M-O-O like the cow, Z-E, <laughs> foodschmooze.org. It's just this is cauliflower flan. Yes, it's the best thing. Yeah, I, that sounds I can't amazing. take it off the menu. I, you know, usually I, I say, well, cauliflower is more of a later in the season vegetable, but they're wonderful. I've been making this for years, and it's on the menu as a side. And right now we have it on a, with a salmon dish with Brussels sprouts. Heaven. <laughs> no, oh let me just say, I have been ordering this thing yeah. <laughs> for quite a long time because it is so delicious. And I was with a bunch of people who are from Woodbury, and they said, just try this spoonful. And I said, Can I have another? Waiter, I'll have one of these. Really, it's so great. Thank you so much for sharing that recipe. And it's wonderful for the holidays, because you can make these up ahead of time and reheat them. You don't even have to bake them the morning of or... 
that kind of thing. You know, so. that's a fantastic idea, that this could be a dish at the holiday table. And so it's up there at foodschmooze.org. In about a minute, we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to talk to Mary Lou Weissman. But first, we wanted to say congratulations to uh, Carol and Bernard for 25 years at Good News Restaurant and Bar. Completely redone, and you're going to be kind of knocked out, I think. Coming up, we have uh, two things that are going to be fun. A book called Searing Inspiration, in which Susan Voland teaches us how to sear meat and vegetables without burning it to bring out flavor in things. This is a chef trick. It's not very hard. You can do it on your stovetop. But here's my favorite part. She does how to make a pan sauce. We kind of did that just now when we were testing our gravy. Just a few things in the pan. You drizzle that over your sauce, and people think you're running a restaurant. It's really that (laughs) simple. It's not that things can't go wrong, because they do sometimes. But basically, this isn't so hard. And this book, Between Two Covers, teaches you how to do it all. More mouth-watering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. We're online now at foodschmooze.org, and we'll be right back. Could I please have more gravy? Gravy. I would like to have more gravy. Gravy is good. Gravy is great. Gravy is good when you put it on your plate. Had a bad day? That's okay. Here's some gravy to make it go away. Tick, tick, pretty tick, tick. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread had a fight. Beans knocked cornbread out of sight. Cornbread said, "Now that's all right. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. I'll be ready." I'm Faith Middleton, and you can sign up for our free podcast, which is a copy of the show that just arrives in your inbox or wherever you want it to arrive every single week so you don't miss a word of the food schmooze. It's like having a little library. You can go back to different ones, and you just sign up once at foodschmooze.org. Fill in the couple boxes, and you're good to go. I am with my treasured food buddies, Chris Prosperi, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut. Wine broker Mark Raymond, and our special guest, Carol Peck of Good News Restaurant and Bar in Woodbury, Connecticut. And we thank her for giving us her restaurant recipes, apple and endive salad with pumpkin seed vinaigrette, cauliflower and raisin flan, which makes me crazy and I order it every single time, with an orange miso vinaigrette. Okay, when I'm in a country I've fallen in love with, 
I want to be a native. I want to speak as they do. I start scanning the real estate rental ads. Writer Mary Lou Weissman and her lawyer husband, Larry Weissman of Westport, Connecticut, know about this kind of love affair. Mary Lou has written a book about their immersion stays in Provence, explaining how two Americans became a little bit French. Armchair travel is fun, and that's why she's on the show. And while this isn't a recipe book, it does include one recipe that we wanted, and that is Larry Weissman's version of how to make pork cheeks in red wine, which they did yeah. in the house in Provence. So I'm very jealous of that. Mary Lou Weissman, welcome to the show, and thanks for being in the studio with our gang. I'm delighted to be here. Thank no. you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Did this Provence thing begin as an idea for a book, or did you go there and say, you know, I could write about this? Wherever I go, I like to write. I don't like being a tourist. Even when I am a tourist, I take time to write. In this instance, we were in Provence. I decided that it would be a great idea to stay there for a month. I've said this about five or six other medieval towns, but I've never done it. Mm-hmm. This time we got serious. Of course, I said you can't you can't just come here for a month and hang out. You got to do something substantial. Larry of course said, "Well, why don't we take cooking classes?" Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I said, "Why don't we take French classes? I yeah. think that would help us to pierce the tourist veil." Carol has a house in Provence too, and the two of you have learned to speak French, Carol, very, very fluently. Mary Lou, I don't know where you are on this. Well, but... my French teacher says, assez bien, which means good enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when, when I'm in another country and I'm really there enjoying the food and, in my case, the wine, I begin speaking in a kind of broken English with, a, <laughs> say, an Italian accent, as if I'm the Italian who's come to America. And then my friend said to me, you're shouting. And I said, I am? He said, yes. It sounds like when they ask, where are you from? You say, Treviso. You know, she said, (laughs) so I'm hilarious as someone who is desperate to communicate and to be a part of the family of that community. Is that what's at the root of it for you? Exactly. We had a fantasy, which was that if we stayed long enough in Provence, we would become a little bit French. Do you As feel you, like you did? Yeah, a I little bit. I feel like bit. you did, too. A, a little bit. And what's the root of that? It's the conversations you seem to be able to have beyond how are you, I am fine. Absolutely. Uh, That's no. the deal. And we did study French pretty seriously. And we lived in very small towns. So as a result, our French teacher, who was held the key to the kingdom, which was language, I mean, that's how you mm. get in. The Provençals are extremely warm and helpful, and they're very proud of their food. They're very proud of their way of life. Ditto for the French, but the French are more like New Yorkers. Uh, So you break this down. Carol, do you do that? You break this down into there's the French and then the the Provençals. The Provençals, you know, they live in a warmer climate. Is that why the South doesn't feel part of the United States? (laughs) Totally. And they speak differently, too. Yes, they do. Because we had a contractor, and I asked him one night, what are you having for dinner? And he said, lapine. 
I said lapin. What is lapin? Meaning lapin, meaning lapin. rabbit. They sound like they're speaking a little Chinese almost at the end. They, well, that's they have interesting. A, they that's, have that's a little, they have a little, little song, flip song. at yeah. the end of each word. Yeah. Like, for instance, with tomorrow morning, demain matin. Uh-huh. They say Domanamatanga. Yeah. That's the old Provençal <laughs> language yeah. coming through. This is true in Sicily, which has a dialect far different from other parts of Italy. And so even my shouting there did nothing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> my, my father, who's from Paris, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Yeah, they can't stand they can't, it. Because the Parisians pride themselves on the perfect pronunciation of every mm. French word. There were some times in the book where I was just laughing out loud because of the things that happened to all of us on these kinds of adventures. And drinking it in, too, because we all want to do what you and Carol and Carol's husband, Bernard, and your husband, Larry, have gotten to do, immerse ourselves in that place, use your house as a camp, and then start heading off into places. And what stops me is this language barrier. So I think you were so smart for getting a handle on the language. Do the people in Provence appreciate that you're trying even with the mistakes? Oh, yes, they do. Of course, we didn't tell them that we'd had three years of high school French before we ever got there. So after two weeks, they were amazed at how well we spoke, and we did not clue them in. Really? In high school, I learned, I was taking Spanish, and I learned, hello, my name is Anita, and the dogs are barking in the park. (laughs) That That helps you when you travel to South America. You didn't learn about Albon de Gas? I actually remember having to learn I am an itinerant vendor of rabbit skins. In school. It's not useful. (laughs) Not useful. Did you try? Uh, There was just no situation in which that was an appropriate thing to say. You know, there's an immersion language lab at Yale University, which is renowned because people who have to go and study and work in a place have to learn fast and in-depth. Willie Ruff, the jazz musician, learned Chinese in a very short amount of time, which is incredibly difficult. Okay. There's something a little cinematic when I read your memoir, which is, I should say is in paperback and called Playing House in Provence, Mary Lou Weisman. And I find that what I keep taking away when my mind turns to it is a vision of you in your couple of houses, because you went back a couple times, and what that looked like when you opened the windows and up the staircase... I see you on your bicycles, pedaling away, deciding what what to do, what to make, what you said in these groups. And I, I realize that that's so interesting about memory and a book, that cinematic thing. And I, I know you as a writer, and I, I know that's a gift. You know, you need to use all your senses. And when you're in Provence, it's a pleasure to do so. It's so beautiful. And... I do see things that way. Well, first of all, one of the treasures of this kind of crazy adaptation to another culture is that everything is new. So that we were there for four separate month-long stays, and we got more and more into the place. And as we did, we got more and more not so excited Mm. because it's the newness. It's the change. It's Mm. the walking up a spiral staircase where the treads have have been worn 
down. Yeah. I, things like that just delight me. But that's the difference between fantasy and reality. You know, stay number one was pure fantasy. I mean, <laughs> look at the ramparts. My God, our house is held up by ramparts. And they're 11th century. I love a ruin. I just love a ruin. Yeah. And so everything is new and everything is a triumph. You yeah. know, you learn a word, it's a triumph. You find... Because you broke a, a shelf in your in your refrigerator, which was unfortunately glass, you have to learn the word for glass. You have to learn the word for shelf. Then you have to do the hardest thing of all, which is to call the place and speak French to them. I have a friend, Teresa Henkelman, who lives in Greenwich. She is co-owner of a restaurant there, and ah, yes. um, Thomas Henkelman. And she said to me a long time ago that she really wanted to learn French because so many of the guests were from mm -hmm. France. These were intellectuals and all of this. So she learned French. She worked very hard. Her husband was French-speaking, husband at the time, and worked very hard. And she said to me that she was finally able to understand the conversations. And she said, they're boring, just like we are. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's something that you're describing. Yes, I'm, like... I'm describing both Larry and I are fallen love with fantasies, and mm -hmm. uh, we seem not to have outgrown them. I know that. <laughs> and we continue to do these things. And yes, it was well worth doing, but mm -hmm. fantasy does have a way of turning into reality, because mm -hmm. there's no other option. Yeah. It's like making your vacation home into your home. Yes. You know? yeah. so a lot then, of... then all of a sudden, it's a whole different place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, the food, you know, the fruits and vegetables, I was so in love with them when I was in France that I was in the Burgundy region, and I walked into an olive oil store and bought a painting off the wall that had been painted of fruits and vegetables mm -hmm. in the market because I was beside myself at yeah. how delicious they were. Was every meal delicious? Yes, yeah. Yes, it was. We ate out a fair amount, although we mostly cooked at home because that was the part of pretending to be French. You have to and you cook had guests. And, yeah. Yeah. We had guests. We did what we imagined we would do. Let's talk about the recipe that's in the book. And this is Larry making a local recipe, which is pork cheeks in a Cote de Rhone, which is a, a French wine, a red. If you don't have pork cheeks, what could you substitute, Carol? Not beef. No. Disappointing. Any other part? You would want to use eventually a pork shoulder because it's got fat and sinew because okay. it's a braised dish and you want to have that okay. element in there. So it's a bottle of red wine, carrot, olive oil, leek, tomato, onion, garlic, celery, chicken stock, thyme, rosemary, tarragon, brown sugar. Doesn't this sound Provençal? Was it good? It was delicious. Larry made this. Yeah. Yeah. Larry makes it, and I'm his sous chef. <laughs> I do the thing called mise en place, yes. you know, oh, the chop, in chopping and the putting in <laughs> different bowls put yeah. in place, you know. I know. And, and, uh, and he uh, listens to La Boheme and sings along. Oh, And nice. it's a happy time. And, <laughs> yes. it, you know, I must say, when nice. it comes to pork cheeks, you really can get them. I went online just for the heck of it, and oh, you, you can, can find sure. them anywhere, and they are cheap. 
What, oh, they're delicious. The cheeks are so good. <laughs> Something what? about the the face that uh, that is That's... making me so sad. The idea of of taking the cheeks is that so hypocritical. Yeah, I know, because but... the way you love bacon, you would think that, when you, you know, yeah. cut out when their you stomach. <laughs> After we got the bacon, the pig didn't miss the cheeks. <laughs> okay, very quickly. I'm sorry. I don't want to end on a down note because I enjoyed playing a house with you in Provence, Mary Lou. There has been a lot of talk about anti-Semitism in the countryside, not just the cities, but the countryside of France. You and Larry are both Jewish. Did you experience it, see it? Was there any discussion about that? Never, never. We were, when our French got better, our French teacher invited people to come and have lunch with us. That was part of the French study was to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, speak French at lunch. And I never ran into it. What I did run into was anti-Muslim sentiment. Mm-hmm. Plenty Very of it. Very big. I mean, France has always had a reputation for perfectly good reason for being anti-Semitic, but I didn't ever come across it. Thank you so much, Mary Lou. Well, thank you for having me. It's yeah. been my pleasure. Do you have a new place you're going to write about? Because I know you like to go places. And I'm write. not sure yet. What I've learned is that even more than ever, I really don't want to be a tourist. So whatever country we pick, we have to learn the language in order to begin to achieve our original fantasy. Mm-hmm. Which is to have conversation with people. To have conversation and to know how to be. Yeah. What fun talking about going to these other places. I, I know that experience, and it's such a treat. We love the local. Please support your local food growers and food makers. Next, we have a cookbook called Searing Inspiration about pan sauces and how to make them. It's a good lesson. Okay, stay with us. Middleton, and this is the Food Schmooze Party, offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York. New York, including Westchester County, the east end of Long Island, that means the Hamptons too. The senior producer is Robin Doyen Aiken, and to hear the show on Connecticut Public Radio, it airs Thursdays at 3 and 9 p.m. and Saturdays at noon. Podcasts, our curated recommendations are always online at foodschmooze.org. We're featuring this cookbook now, Searing Inspiration, on this show because it's about how to do something that I love to do at home, make simple pan sauces for whatever protein I'm pan cooking. It could be tofu, chicken, beef, pork, seafood, even vegetables. So you take a couple of minutes to make a pan sauce at the end of cooking your protein or your vegetables. And what was possibly boring is suddenly a wow. 
that's the magic of pan sauces. And one of the things that you do to bring out flavor is to sear a piece of meat or your vegetables. That doesn't mean burn. It means sear. And this book is kind of a lesson between two covers on how to do all of this. You're about to meet our guest, author Susan Volland, who is going to teach you. And so will I, though I'm a shortcut kind of girl. So Susan is a classically trained chef and really knows what she's doing. When I make a hamburger on the stovetop, I get the pan pretty hot. I add a little bit of oil, and then I sear the meat on both sides. Now, let's say I'm doing a steak on the stovetop. So pan hot, a little oil, sear the steak on both sides. Maybe it's not completely cooked through, so I pop it in the oven if it's not done inside. And when it's ready, I put the steak pan back on the stove, low heat now, and I toss in a little butter, a splash of red wine. I scrape up with a wooden spoon all those crispy stuff on the bottom of the pan. I let it reduce a little so the alcohol cooks off. I taste it, and then I drizzle it over the steak or the potatoes or whatever. (laughs) And it makes everything really fun, and you feel kind of restaurant-y. It's not scary, I promise you. I certainly have made some mistakes, but you really learn as you go. That's how I learn. And that's why Susan Volland is here to give us tips and ideas. She is author, Susan is, of Searing Inspiration, as I mentioned. Susan, welcome to the Food Schmooze Party. Thank you very much, Faith. You're welcome. Let's start with what searing does for either vegetables, fish, meat, What are you trying to do by searing something? The essence is to add flavor, to get that brown, aromatic, flavorful surface that comes from what's called the Maillard reaction. It makes that roast taste roasty as opposed to being like boiled meat. Just getting that wonderful flavor, sometimes a little bit of a crust, adds aroma and adds a real savory umami element. Mm -hmm. So you believe in umami. Carol, do you believe in umami? Yes. It's a thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. You do not a, believe in umami. Oh, you're going to get me started now. Oh, do you no. not believe in umami? Oh, no. No. I, I, no, we uh, all believe in that. We believe in it. Yeah. I'm a follower. I, I desperately. No, it's like a religion for us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. You okay. worried me there for a minute. I know. No, no, I know. no. No, you can be calm. Okay. <laughs> we understand why we're searing anything because it brings out flavor. Now, let's walk people through A recipe that we made, we is the generous version of Chris made this, Um, one of my favorite dishes in life. So if I'm on an island stranded, I'm probably going to say, can I have chicken piccata while I'm there? So this is a chicken breast cutlet with lemon and caper sauce. Mm -hmm. Chris, tell me how easy this was to do to make this pan sauce. Simple. We lightly floured the chicken, salt and pepper, and then in a hot pan, we seared it on both sides. Was the pan preheated before you put your oil in? So Carol and I were just talking about like the oven. Remember, there's on and off. With the pan and searing, there's not just on and off. You have to get the pan to the right temperature. I always tell my young cooks when they're starting out, Mm -hmm. listen to the pan. If it's too loud, right? If it's too loud, then it's too hot. If it's not making any noise, it's too cold. So you get a feel for it. So you heat up the pan, a nice medium high heat. Mm -hmm. Then you add your oil. Then you flour, and I even used cornstarch. You can use rice flour, salt and pepper, dredge it, and then it goes in the hot pan. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can hear it cooking. That's the cool thing about cooking. You cook with all your senses, right? It's not just seeing. You hear it. You smell it. When you start seeing it browning around the edges, you know you're going to flip it. Once it cooks, you know, gets nice and brown on the other side, you remove it from the pan. Okay. Susan, jump in here. How did you make the sauce after you browned the chicken? You mentioned it before when you were explaining the the hamburger. You get those yummy brown sticky bits at the bottom of the pan, which is all about the flavor for the sauce. So you want to make sure that you have browned your chicken so that those sticky bits are golden and aromatic, and then dissolve those into a matter of liquid Mm. so you have that flavorful liquid that goes Mm. on it. And what I kind of explain is it's the difference between the taste of the turkey and the smell of the turkey when it's roasting. You have those sticky roasted bits, and you're turning those liquefied, And then you do aromatics, so you have a little bit of garlic, a little bit of chili flakes, a little bit of shallots, and that flavors the oil and it adds a complexity. And then you deglaze it, meaning you add some liquid and you melt all those crispy bits into the liquid, reduce that down. You can embellish it. In this case, we embellish it with capers and lemon. Mm. And then we enrich it by adding something quite delightful, like a little bit of butter or a splash of cream. And so those are elemental steps that are repeated in almost every simple pan sauce and even complex pan sauces. Mm. You understand those elements and you can make a world of different flavors and combinations. And then these things that you're adding, these splashes and the scraping of the good bits at the bottom of the pan and all that, that's done in the same pan you cooked in, but with the protein out. And then at the very end, do you put your, your chicken back into the pan and the, the um, sauce you've made, or do you pour the juice from the pan onto the chicken? We finish that chicken in the sauce. It's browned, taken out, the pan sauce is sort of built, then you return the chicken back into that sauce and make it a whole kind of cohesive dish. This is Susan Voland, and she is author of a book called Searing Inspiration, and it is our featured cookbook. We're going to tell you about Susan's halibut with coarse mustard and rosemary sauce in just a minute. Carol, what am I doing wrong when, when my fish feels a little tough on the outside? I think you're probably overcooking it when you first sear it because uh-huh. it makes it seize up. Uh-huh. Another thing you should do on, on fish is to make sure you dry it, pat it dry, because you won't have as much liquid even coming out of it into the... Which starts to poach the underside. Well, what's amazing is people can buy a griddle and they think it's just for cooking pancakes on your stoves. But that is a plancha. To cook fish and to sear things on that is fabulous. But the plancha is flat, right? You can't make a a pan sauce in that. No, you can't. Okay, so this is where Susan comes in. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But Carol, thank you for that tip. That's going to make me better. Okay. Susan, halibut with coarse mustard and rosemary sauce. Let's start with the searing. I wish we did this one on the I know. I wish we did. (laughs) (laughs) You don't put your request I'm going to make this at home. Halibut is one of my favorite pieces of fish. It can be pricey, so probably there are other fish that you could substitute. But it's a good fish to sear. It can take the heat. So, Susan, your halibut with coarse mustard and rosemary sauce, we're all a little gaga over this, and thank you for letting us put it on the site. Tell me how you would sear a piece of halibut. I appreciate that you like that. It is one of my favorite recipes. I go back to it all the time. 
What I do with halibut, just like you said, it's firm, but it's also succulent in the middle, and it's not too meaty. And it stands up to that heat, like you say, the plancha, so you want that surface area, you want that good surface area to have that nice hot pan, not screaming hot pan, but a nice hot pan, and it will brown nicely. How do you recognize when it's a quote-unquote nice hot pan? (laughs) When you drop an eighth of a teaspoon of water, it will fizzle and disappear in a couple seconds. It'll kind of crackle and disappear. It won't spit and it won't just kind of sit there and steam. When does the oil go in? The pan needs to be the right temperature. As soon as you put the oil in, it heats up almost immediately. So rather than kind of cooking that oil while the pan heats up, you put the oil in just when the pan's at the right temperature, swirl it in, and then drop your halibut. Let it sizzle, and you listen to it. Each piece that you drop in there has that same wonderful sizzle. Mm. And then you don't touch it. You just leave it there because if you fuss with it or you move things around, it's going to stick. How do you know, though, for us as home cooks and and for me as a terrible fish cooker, uh, how do you know when it is time to flip it? What am I seeing? Well, it takes about four minutes for a filet that's about three-quarters to an inch long to get brown. On one side? On one side. Okay, so somewhere in that vicinity. Carol, you know, you're a professional chef too. So what are you looking for? Also that your edges are starting to get crispy and a little brown. And then then the middle part is going to be cooked. Okay. So that's when you go in with a a long metal spatula or a fish spatula. Go under the whole thing and flip it. And your eyes show you the oil. If you really pay attention, look at the oil. The oil looks different when the pan is ready. It moves differently in the pan. It has a different sheen to it. And you know exactly when to put that fish in the pan by what the oil is doing in the pan. And that's why we always say you cook with your senses. My other anxiety point is that I hear myself so often at the dinner table saying, I'm sorry, this is a little Mm. overcooked. Because I want that velvety softness inside and yet that flavor booster browning on the caramelization on the outside. I have a tip for you. Okay. One is I, for thick pieces of fish, I preheat the oven to about 425. I flip the fish and I throw it in the oven and let it cook with that convection in that heat gradually as opposed to just the surface heat. Mm. And that means I can pull it out just when I think it's right. And that's the second tip mm-hmm. is that you don't want to stop and take it out of the pan after it's cooked completely, because it will continue to cook and continue to uh, dry out a little bit as it sits while you make the pan sauce and by the time you take it to the table. So I always stop cooking my fish when I can peek in the middle and the flakes are starting to flake, but there's still a little translucence in the middle, kind of cohesive. It still pulls Mm -hmm. together. When you say flakes, it can fall apart when you take it out of the pan. But if it still kind of holds together but starts to flake, you lift it out, you put it on a platter, and you hold that while you make the sauce, and then it will become perfectly done by the time you take it to the table. Well, thank you, Susan. What Susan is describing happens not only with fish, but with beef and pork, and it's called 
carry over cooking. You'll see people in the food world taking something out a little tiny bit early because they know sitting and resting, it's keeping cooking. Yeah, and, and that resting that's, part. And so and that's crucial. That is so crucial. With fish, you fish, would, yeah, everything, everything you, you cook needs to rest. Your fish? Yes, the juices redistribute. I mean, it's all do the they different. Really? Yes, they do. Oh, they yeah, do. they do. Oh, I don't know if you ever jumped into a really cold lake. It's the same thing with hot. If you jumped into a really I did see hot, that Seinfeld right? episode. Yeah. So I mean, that's the thing. You tense up, right? So meat too. Proteins when they get hot or cold like that, they tense up. So you want to relax. You want to rest it. The longer you rest it, the better it is. Mm-hmm. And that's where pan sauces come in too, because. Yes. If it starts to cool down a little bit, you've got that super hot, freshly made sauce that you can just spoon over the top of it, exactly. zoom it to the table, and then you have that hot element and that well-rested protein. The sauce that we're talking about with a coarse mustard and rosemary sauce has in it some butter and white wine and a little oh my goodness. Uh, extra dry vermouth if you can. There's a whole grain mustard plus a Dijon mustard and some prepared horseradish, chopped fresh rosemary because it's so flavorful, a touch of butter and lemon wedges. There you go. And she's holding your hand through the whole thing. I'm talking with Susan Voland, who's author of Searing Inspiration. The third recipe we have on the site is a skirt steak, one of my favorites, with artichoke and pickled pepper relish. I love skirt steak. I think it's incredibly flavorful. What is it about the skirt steak that makes it that way? The fact that where the cut is from, it has much more flavor in that cut and it's also got a really good fattiness to it. Without yeah. fat, we don't right. have flavor. So right. that's what you're getting in that skirt steak. Okay, so here was the thing I was intimidated by, artichoke and pickled pepper relish. Susan, when, I, when you walked me through how to do this in the pan, I thought, oh, my goodness, I can do this. Absolutely. It's the same principles. You sear that meat nice and brown, and skirt steak does that. It picks up that brown real quick. Nice and brown on both sides. Let that rest while it's resting. I think of this recipe as kind of uh, antipasto, some of the things you might have and I have in my fridge. I like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So some pickled peppers, sometimes some marinated artichokes. You could probably put some olives or even yeah. giardinera or something like that, tossed in that elemental pan sauce. You've got a little bit of garlic a little bit of onion, you've deglazed the pan with a little bit of wine, in this case vermouth, and then you add those kind of relishy items, antipasto items in your fridge, and then instead of enriching it with butter, you use a really beautiful olive oil. Very quickly, I have heard from people in the food world for the longest time that vermouth is actually a smarter pan splash to deglaze a pan to get up those crispy bits in terms of flavor than wine. Yeah, I don't see why not. I thought it always helped. It wasn't as sweet sometimes. Susan, what do you think? I think extra dry vermouth I didn't use, and I'm using it more and more now because it has a slightly higher alcohol content, so you can leave it in your cupboard for months if you need to. That's not like white wine. You have to That's important. It. The other thing is it's got slight aromatics. It's got a few um, herbs and elements in it that wine doesn't have, which, which add to the flavor. Convenience, it's a good flavor, and you can keep it. Susan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so and f- much for having me. For all, all your tips. And Great Carol recipes. Peck, thank you so much. Good News Cafe celebrating 25 years in Woodbury, Connecticut. 
uh, good news restaurant and bar, bar, I should say. And to Mary Lou Weissman, author of the travel memoir, Playing House in Provence. Thank you so much. We're on Connecticut Public Radio Thursdays at 3 and 9 and Saturdays at noon. Weekdays, listen for my 60-second food schmoozes and never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton. Hey, don't want the party to end? Well, neither do we. Talk with us anytime online at foodschmooze.org.